Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on all audio platforms and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Stuart Neville, the Northern Irish crime author who has written nearly a dozen books. His debut, The Twelve, was published in 2009 and went on to win the mystery thriller category of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. And it was picked up as one of the top crime novels of 2009 by both the New York Times and the LA Times. Stuart has been shortlisted for a range of local and international awards, including the Thixon's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year and the CWA Ian Fleming. Steel Dagger and the Irish Book Awards. He's also been published in the US under the name Halen Beck. Before writing, he had a number of interesting jobs, including as a composer, a teacher, a salesman, a film extra, a baker, and a hand double for a well known Irish comedian. I mean, Stuart, how could you leave all of that behind for writing? Uh, quite easily, to be honest. <laughs> um, it's not an uncommon thing, I think, for writers to uh, have. Um, uh, wandered through life a bit, uh, a bit aimlessly, maybe, um, before winding up with writing. It seems to be one of those things you kind of, uh, you have to wait till you're in your 30s, you've got a few miles on the clock and you you, you kind of spend a few years in the wilderness before you finally get there. Um, a lot of us writers have these very varied CVs, I think. And I mean, the hand double for a well-known Irish comedian, I just have so many questions, like who, firstly? That was Ardell O'Hanlon. Um, oh, Really? Yeah, for the, uh, I was uh, sort of music supervisor on a short film he made with some local guys. This is maybe oh, it could be twenty five years ago by now. Um, a, it was a film called Flying Saucer Rock and Roll, and the scene in which he had to play guitar. Ah, okay. Um, I had to be his hand double for those scenes as well as showing him generally how to hold the thing and and so on. Because you are a musician and a huge guitar enthusiast. That that might be an understatement. <laughs> saying no more because you you now combine the writing the love of writing with the love of music you do you do a bit of both don't you yeah i mean music has always been there um i mean i i, I had wanted to be a writer since i was a very young kid um but in my teens i discovered guitar and uh, that seemed a far more uh seductive path to follow and i, I uh spent a number of years trying to first of all trying to be a rock star then trying to break into writing music for film um, which it managed to get a little bit of work in, but uh, I guess in my mid-30s, I, I came back to writing again as a serious prospect. But music has reared its head again in more recent years as well, because I'm now in a band with some other crime writers called the Fun Loving Crime Writers. Um, I love it. Yeah, along with uh, <laughs> it's Val McDermott and Mark Billingham, uh, Chris Brookmeyer, Luca Bessie and Doug Johnson. And it, uh, you know, it's been quiet the last couple of years, obviously, because of... Uh, various lockdowns but um it's starting to pick up again we uh i've kind of reached a peak uh, a couple of years back with playing glastonbury right really wow but uh yeah starting to pick up again now we're starting to get more gigs coming up in the next year so um yeah which has been a nice distraction because writing is a very solitary pursuit so it gives us an excuse to get out of the house basically and where can people hear the music if they go onto youtube i assume uh, I think there's some clips on YouTube. We we have made a decision uh, consciously, consciously not to ever try and record uh, anything or record any original material in particular. Um, 
because it will be that we've already discussed Stardew Hannah, it'll be very much like that, you know, seeing Father Ted where they're trying to write the Eurovision song <laughs> yeah. and it, it devolves into just massive bleeped out swearing. Well, that'll be us under the bleeps. <laughs> um, so we made a decision never to do that, but there are clips online of us doing various gigs. And I think you can see the bits of the Glastonbury set on YouTube, I think. And what sort of covers are you doing? Well, that's the thing. All the, our, our slogan is murdering songs for fun and all our, all our songs <laughs> are crime related. Um, so we're doing anything really from stylistically anything from Johnny Cash to The Clash Um, so stuff like I Fought the Law um, Folsom Prison Blues um, Psycho Killer uh, and so on the theme is murder and mayhem and general chaos through the songs and we it's kind of taken on life of its own we did it kind of as a laugh initially but um we wound up being surprisingly good at it. Right. And we're kind of a party band. People all seem to enjoy themselves. So it's become this thing of its own now where we played various book festivals. Then I started moving into actual music festivals. Um, and we've got a, I suppose you promote, we've got a, a, we're doing our own show at the Queen's Theatre in Edinburgh. Uh, in April, tickets which are on sale now for anybody who hears us who happens to be in the Edinburgh area. Or can get to Edinburgh, we, that's going to be quite a big show. And you um, end up, obviously, you know, obviously playing the music, which is brilliant. But now suddenly you're in a room or in a Zoom room, whichever, on, you know, chatting to other crime writers. Do you end up talking about your work, your writing work? It's it's, it's the one thing, actually, within the band, we don't tend to discuss books an awful lot. It, it's, it's um, I think because for all of us, it's an escape from that. It's, mm. it's, our, it's where we go to depressurise from... Uh, the existence of a writer, which is, which I say is quite quite solitary uh, a lot of the time, um, and there's lots of ups and downs and uh, all sorts of different pressures and so on. So the music thing in the band is very much a release from that. So it's the last thing we tend to discuss very often is is writing itself. Well, let's move away from the music then, back to the writing. So as you said, you started writing, I suppose, when you were. Uh, you were quite young, but you had a, a short story published in an online magazine, and that sort of that's where it all kicked off for you. Yeah, I, I wrote, I was in my mid-30s, I think, and I'd, I'd been through some sort of things in my personal life. Um, I don't, I'm sorry, my dog has started barking in the background <laughs> here. I don't even hear him. Um, in, my, yeah, in my mid-30s, and there were some changes in my personal life, I, I reached one of those kind of crossroads, as one does in life, and I had to think about what I was going to do with myself, and I decided to go back to writing. It was something I tried various times over the years. Um, but I decided it was now time to take it seriously. Right. And uh, I wrote three novels quite quickly, one after the other. The first two will never see the light of day because they're <laughs> terrible. Uh, but the third one was uh, The Twelve, or uh, The Ghost of Belfast, as it was published as in, in, the, in the States. Um, and I'd written that, and I didn't quite know what to do with it. And um, I'd submitted it to a couple of literary agents, but uh, didn't really get any response for it. And I'd, about six months after finishing the book, I wrote a short story um, called The Last Dance, which I sold to an online magazine called thuglet.com. And was this totally separate to the book now? Wasn't it an extract it, it was from a, the book? It was, a, it was a revisiting the main character of that book. Right. Um, and I'd submitted it. And I, I remember getting the email that they were taking the story and going to publish it on my birthday, <laughs> which was nice. And then about two weeks after it was published, I got an email uh, from a man called Nat Sobel in New York, Tommy is a literary agent and he represented people like uh, uh, Joseph Lambeau and so on and uh, James Elroy. 
Wow. Who happened to be my favourite author. And he made, said that uh, he'd like the story and if there was a novel he could read, could I please send it? Which I duly did. Um, and I assume you thought it was a wind-up initially, did you? I, I didn't know what to make of it. Um, I, I very quickly researched it to make sure it was something legitimate, but it was it, it seemed like one of those uh, kind of fantasy scenarios that uh, never actually happened in real life. Because um, you know, most of the writers I know, they'll submitted to agent after agent after agent before finally landing one. Um so yeah, I, I sent him the novel, and uh, uh, a few days later, I, I had a literary agent, um, which is wonderful, and you know, it changed my life. No exaggeration to say that. At that point, as you say, then you had a literary agent on board. I mean, so what sort of guidance did he give you? You had your novel already written. Did he say to you, "Okay, this is great. We just need to tweak," or was he saying to you, "This needs a bit of a rewrite"? How did he help you? That is very much a hands-on agent, a literary agent. Well, either be hands on or hands off. There are some agents who would just simply take the work and, and try and sell it. Whereas Nat, um, he really, he rolls up the sleeves and gets stuck in with it. And uh, we worked on it together for, for a few months, trying to knock it into shape um, before it was ready for submission. And it, it, that's been the pattern ever since. Once I finished a draft of a novel, I usually rewrite it a couple of times myself and it will go to Nat. And Nat's, Nat doesn't mince words. Nat's... <laughs> Right to the point, he wants to describe something I'd written as being fluff and horseshit. Oh, right. Um, so, you know, he doesn't. He, he doesn't hold back. Um, so I know if he likes something, he's he's genuine about it. You know. Um, so yeah, we normally knock the book back and forth two or three more times with Nat. Then it'll go to the publisher at that point. Um, and I like that way of working. I know some authors who don't. Um, I personally uh, enjoy getting that feedback and getting the chance to go back and hone the novel uh, um, and I enjoy the process of taking this very rough lump and bit of prose and turning it into something a bit more polished you know and obviously you're still together as a as a working relationship so that's evolved then over the years yeah and um, and that doesn't take on very many clients so no I'm very fortunate to be there um, but we've wound up with just a, a very good working relationship Um uh, you know, I've been to his home dinner, he came to my wedding, that kind of thing. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's that kind of relationship we have. And uh, he and his wife, Judith, who's a, a partner in the agency, um, we've got a very tight bond. Um, and yeah, I don't know what to do without him, to be honest. Yeah, at this point, absolutely. Now, the book, as you said, the debut was called The Twelve, but that wasn't actually the original name. It was called The Ghosts of Belfast. So why, what happened with that name change? It was... Um, this has become something of a sore point for me in, in recent times. Um, I wrote a piece about this actually a, a few weeks back. It was published in the Irish Times um, about how publishers often try to bury the, the, the setting of books set in Northern Ireland. They see it as a commercial death for a book. Um, I remember uh, when I had the publishing deal and I started messing with other authors and uh, Colin Bateman, Belfast author who wrote uh, The Washing Jack and, and so on. Remember him saying to me about the title, he said, they won't let you keep that title, you know. And I remember saying, why not? And he said, well, it's called Belfast, and so you will not get, they won't let you, let you publish that with Belfast in the title. And true enough, uh, a few weeks later, I got a, a phone call from the my then publisher um, saying, yeah, we need to change this title for the UK market. And ironically, I mean, the the that uh, aversion to Northern Ireland's setting was nowhere 
more true than in Northern Ireland itself. Mm. Um, and I, I think that has broken down somewhat in, in, in recent years. I think that's, that has changed. And it's been things like uh, TV shows like The Fall and Dairy mm. Girls and so on. And I think people are starting to wake up to Northern Ireland as a setting for stories and that the stories don't necessarily have to revolve around the troubles and, and that particular history we have. Um, we don't shy away from it at the same time. It'll always be there, but it doesn't necessarily have to drive every single story that comes out of this part of the world. And also the wealth of Northern Irish writing talent that has come out, particularly in the crime genre, over the, that past 12 years since you launched your debut. It's been phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, there was there really only a handful of names. Going back to the 90s, say, I mean, Colin, and saying commercial crime fiction, if you like, Colin would have been sort of the trailblazer, then Adrian McKinty, um, with Brian McGilloway. Mm-hmm. It came out just before I did. But uh, since then, we've had uh, uh, particularly female writers, I think it's been really gratifying to see when uh, a few years back it was very much a male-dominated scene in mm-hmm. Northern Irish crime fiction, but in the last sort of five, six years, that has changed drastically. I mean, Claire McGowan was there, was one of the first to break through, but with Claire Allen, mm-hmm. Sharon Dempsey, uh, Kelly Crichton and more, you know, there's been a, a, a very much an upswing of writers coming from Northern Ireland and they're all telling very different stories. And one thing we I found, I, I wrote a, sorry, I edited a short story collection a few years back now with Adrian McKinty uh, called Belfast Noir. And that's a series of anthologies by a particular publisher that are about different cities around the world. There's a Berlin war, there's a Boston war, and so on. They did a Belfast war. And it was 14 stories, all crime stories set in Belfast. And you'd think, when it's such a narrow focus, you'd end up with 14 very, very similar stories. Um, but the opposite was true. There were 14 very, very different stories. Each one was unique. And it, that proved to me the breadth of storytelling that can come out of Northern Ireland. For such a tiny place, um, and even within one genre, there's such a range of voices. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And we've had a number of them actually on on the Inside Books podcast. And I suppose then just to go back, obviously, the success of The Twelve, which was pretty phenomenal. And you you continued on then with with a number of books around that same character. So that was, you know, did you just want to try and, and just develop the character more and the stories more? What was your reason for a series? I... To be honest, a lot of it came down to uh, publisher suggestions because at that time, talking 11, 12 years ago, it was uh, the series was king. You know, it was uh, very much um, what led the market was series crime fiction. Um, the problem is I, I was never a series reader to a great extent. I never saw myself as a series writer um, simply because I got bored too quick. Um, and... Most of those books that are set in Northern Ireland, I saw them as having a, a persistent world with different characters moving through rather than following one detective, say, over various books. So for a couple of books, it focused on Jerry Fagan as protagonist. For a few books, it was Jack Lennon. Then for a few books, it was uh, Serena Flanagan. Mm-hmm. And um, that, to me, was more satisfying, moving through different characters and then telling those different stories rather than sticking with one character. And I... I I have an admiration for those writers um, like John Connolly, for example, who can come back to the same character year after year over and over and still find something fresh and something new and a different story to tell each time. And that, I think, is a skill in itself and not one that I personally have. Um, but I've, 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 I've kind of moved away from that now and I feel more comfortable not feeling mm-hmm. pressed to, 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 to do a series, even though even the book I'm writing now and 
the House of Ashes, the most recent book, they're all more or less set in that same world still. And the House of Ashes is your latest one, and that's a that is a standalone, isn't it? It is a standalone. It's 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 set in the same the the fictional village that of Morganstown that it's that it's set close to appears in other books as well. Um, so it's part of that same world, but it is a standalone novel. And I, I, I think most of what I'm doing at the minute seems to be wanting to do the standalone novels. Um, and that, I mean, unless a character sort of draws me back again, which may happen, you never know. And then just to go back, so after your Serena Flanagan uh, series and before the latest one now, um, you actually started writing, uh, you wrote a couple of novels that were based in the US and you actually used a different name when you were publishing over there, Hale and Beck. So again, did all of that come about because your literary agent is American? No, not not directly. It was um, it was specifically the, the book here and gone, the first Hillenbeck book. Um, the story itself required being set in the US because it needed the idea of wilderness, of big expansive uninhabited land, um, and Ireland is simply too small a setting for it. It needed that idea of the big sky, you know. Um, and uh, I'd spent a fair bit of time in uh, in Arizona in around Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona, and that see, the desert backdrop really fascinated me as well. And it was also a different kind of book. It was kind of a high-concept standalone thriller, which I hadn't done up to that point. And all those things coming together suggested that uh, a pen name might be the way to go with that particular book. Um, so we did, and that's the way we went for it. And, and it's... Um, now, alas, Hillenbeck is dead and gone. That, that oh, is not really? Right. What, what happened? So it was um, just two books? Did the two books what I was contracted for. And the problem with writing high-concept standalone thrillers is you have to keep coming up with high-concept mm-hmm. high standalone thrillers, which I was kind of struggling with, to be honest. Um, and I felt like I kind of got that out of my system, and I really wanted to revisit uh, Northern Ireland as a setting. Um and also, I, I was finding juggling two different names to be difficult. Difficult, and you know, I'll be honest. If I had to do it over again, I'd, I'm not sure I would have done the pen name. Really, uh, I, I type being twenty twenty and all that. Um, I might have just stuck with my own name. I think I, one of the things I did was I overestimated how many people would figure out it was actually me mm-hmm. writing those books. Um, which I discovered. I, I did a book tour for the first time on that book, and I went to a bookstore in Milwaukee which I'd done events at three or four times before. I had always felt it would always be a good, healthy crowd there. And going to the back to the same bookstore and having like three people there. Right, yeah. And discovering that nobody realised that Beck was actually me. Mm-hmm. And I completely overestimated how much of my existing readership I'd carry with me with the pen name. And it really was, I hadn't realised it really was going back to square one. Right. Um, which might it might, might might be a good thing for some authors for me at that time it wasn't so that that was a lesson learned um but also by the time i'd done those two books i think i was just done with that whole exercise um and it's not to say i wouldn't write a book like that again in that same setting i very well would very well may do that in the future um but if i do it'll be under my own name i think and interestingly, you know, some of your contemporaries, again, Adrian McKinty, Steve Kavanagh, um, they've done that and, and did it under their own name as well. Yeah, I mean, Steve Kavanagh is actually a pen name, but it's the, it's the pen name he's used from the start. But yeah, um, and again, they've built their readership rather than sort of going in. I mean, Adrian took quite a while, quite a few books for him to, to finally hit that, the jackpot with, with, the, with the chain and so mm-hmm. on. Um, and in retrospect, uh, I, I wish I'd maybe stuck with my own name. I just sort of 
let that build more. But it's it's um, I think what's happened with Steve and with Adrian is is kind of encouraging, and that it shows that there is there is hope to kind of break into that bigger market. Absolutely, and that there's appetite there. And in terms of the current book, then House of Ashes is that being published in the US? That has been published published at the same time as it was in Ireland. So it's it's uh, now unfortunately I uh, I have a really good publisher in the States, Civil Press, for the books under my own name. And uh, normally I would have gone on tour with the books, and unfortunately I haven't been able to do it that time with uh, House of Ashes for obvious reasons. And um, yeah, I really miss getting out and seeing the readers in the states this time. And it's funny that's what a lot of authors are saying on Inside Books, and not even in the states anywhere really in Ireland. They just love getting out and talking to their reader, readers, and haven't had the opportunity to do that. And um, what are you working on now then at the moment? I'm writing on another standalone book. Um, it's kind of slow going. Writing through lockdown has been difficult for me because uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that I, I I've been doing a lot of the home had done a lot of the homeschooling. Okay. Uh, and by the time you sit with, with an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old, try and remember how to do long division <laughs> for a day. Your brain really isn't in the place to sit down to start writing after all that. Um, and then plus also I tend to write in my local library. It's oh. where I tend to get the words down. Right. Um, that hasn't been possible for a while. It's just recently opened up again and I started being able to write again. Anyway, that's it. Sorry, I, I digress. It's uh, But yeah, I'm writing on a, working on a book at the minute under the working title of The Stone Prophet. Um, mm. That might not stay. Uh, it's set in, uh, in rural Northern Ireland uh, at the end of the Second World War. Uh, it's about a, a soldier coming home from the front, having been quite badly injured and disfigured to his uh, very remote village, little mill village that he, that he was born and raised in, and finding it has changed when he comes back and that the village, the people of the village have kind of fallen under the thrall of a, a preacher who has very tight grip on them. And he winds up in conflict with this preacher. Um, and that's about all I can tell you at the minute. And interestingly, you mentioned, as you say, the, the the Second World War, because one of your previous novels, Ratlines, again, was in a similar time era. Do you do you have a, a love of history? Not to the extent of a lot of historical primaries. Like I have a good friend called James Benn. He writes thrillers set during the Second World War. And... Um, but he has this like, encyclopedic knowledge of the war, which, which, which I don't have. But I do like sometimes stepping out of the current timeline as it were and I do it I do it I did it in Ratlines and I do it to an extent in House of Ashes as well but half that book is set in the early 60s mm-hmm. um, so I do enjoy going back sometimes and removing some of the hindrances you can have with setting a book in the present day like mobile phones and internet and that mm-hmm. so I'm not having to worry about that and not necessarily having to worry about forensics to the same extent that kind of thing um, so it can be liberating, but at the same time, it also binds you to researching circumstances and and so on of the setting. Um, so it can be a relief sometimes to, to write stuff set in the past, but also it brings its own particular challenges as well. And you mentioned at the outset as well, you get bored quite easily. So is this part of the reason you set yourself a challenge practically? Yeah, I, mean, was, I remember John Connolly saying, and I don't know if this quote originated with him or somebody else, but saying that every book you write is a reaction to the last. And I find that's very true in that every time I've written one thing, I want I always want to kind of want to do a, a left turn and do something else. Mm-hmm. Like I'd written the two Hill and Beck books set in the States. So then The House of Ashes becomes like the most Northern Irish book I've ever written. Um, and then this book uh, that I'm writing now, it's... Uh, 
probably the least violent I've ever written, and it's the, the least that doesn't dwell very much on a crime, particularly. Um, it's again, it's a reaction to what I've written before. It's still a crime novel, but it's not. It doesn't begin with a body on a slab, you know. All right, well, there, there you have it. Don't worry, we'll enjoy, we'll enjoy reading it. In the meantime, Stuart Neville, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books, and you'll find the House of Ashes online or at your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books I or E. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on the various audio platforms. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Breda Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production. 